0: Hey, everybody, it's Mike. Welcome or welcome back to the Revision Church Podcast. While you're here, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download the Revision app, which is actually the best way to get access to new content and share it with friends. You can get the app by texting Revision App to 77977. Thanks for listening today. My hope is that this message will be helpful for you and would inspire you to take the next step on your faith journey. Amen. You guys can take a seat. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors at Revision. I'm excited to be here today. How about you? Alright. So I'm an oldest child. How many other oldest children do we have out there? Yeah. We gotta look out for each other, you guys. It's so much harder to be an oldest kid than it is a middle or a youngest. Because you show up, your parents have no idea what they're doing. They're making it up as they go along. They're usually broke. It's just like you shouldn't be there yet. Like I My siblings, when they got brought home, got brought to a home. It had a yard and a driveway, not me. I got brought to like a a three foot wide outdoor hallway slash patio at a less than luxury apartment complex on the south side. That's where I learned to ride my first big wheel. It was a Big Bird big wheel, pretty fancy. Yeah. Uh, and, and you'd think that since we were on the second floor of this patio, my parents would have watched me after they gave that to me to ride. But again, didn't know what they were doing yet. And so on my first day, I took Big Bird off-roading down the concrete stairway onto the concrete parking lot. I lived though. Here I am. And then I grew up and I still had to do more oldest kid things. And I was reminded of one of them a few weeks ago. We were at my parents' house in Davenport. One week while I was home from college, like 20 years ago, I remodeled their bathroom. My mom had wanted for a long time to rip out the linoleum and put tile on the floor and all over the walls, what you did in the 1900s, the little white ones. And they bought the tile and then they left it in boxes on their floor for so long, the carpet was a different color underneath. This is a true story. This is how efficient my dad was at home improvement projects. And so I got home for spring break one year, and I was like, I'm just, I'm just doing it. And I, I did, like floor, walls, paint, the whole thing. And I expected that I would be rewarded for my sacrifice, at least with gratitude. I didn't ask for anything other than that. I thought, you know what, here, I did this. I should at least be thankful. And instead, the way my family has chosen to reward me for that hard work over the last two decades is to mercilessly laugh at and make fun of me. Because at one point, while well, I wasn't looking, and I was down on all fours, like scraping glue off the floor so I could level it, my brother took an admittedly funny video of that. And so now when we get around, we get to talk about how great James is for taking that video. That's what the middle kid contributed, a video of the oldest kid working. I contributed a bathroom remodel, but James, this is a good one. He got the video. I'm not bitter about it at all. A little. But for real, I look back at that and, and so many other things I've done and choices I've made, and I can see the achiever. That lives inside of me. I don't actually think that's just an oldest kid thing. I think that's real for all of us oldest, middle, youngest, only, whatever. It's like a 21st century American thing. There's this idea that permeates our culture and it lands heavy on our minds and our souls that our value is tied to what we do, that we earn the right to be loved by being successful. That, that who we are and how important we are to the people around us is intricately interwoven with our achievements. We're kicking off this brand new series this morning called Image of the Invisible. We're going to spend the next two months digging deep into the book of Colossians. I'm super pumped for it because it's this incredibly powerful poetic picture Over four chapters of who Jesus is and what that means for us. And as I've been reading and rereading it, there is one word that keeps jumping off the page at me, and it's grace. Grace. So we're gonna kick off this new series by talking about grace this morning, because I think grace is one of the most difficult concepts in all of Christianity to wrap our minds around. And not because it's complicated. It isn't complicated at all. Grace is hard for us to grasp because it's countercultural. We live in the middle of a performance-obsessed society where almost every bit of acceptance we ever receive is based on what we do. We get accepted to colleges based on our academic performance. We get accepted to friend groups based on our social performance. We get accepted to new jobs based on our work. Performance, and we are constantly reinforced with the idea that our performance earns our acceptance and then we're almost smacked upside the head with this foundational truth of the gospel upon which all of Christianity is built, that God's acceptance has nothing to do with our performance. God's love isn't built in any way on what we achieve On what boxes we check or on how successfully we check them. And that's just not an easy thing to wrap our minds around. It just feels crazy. It feels too good to be true. And Christianity is the only faith system or philosophical system on the planet that dares to claim anything like grace at all. Growing up, one of my best friends was a guy named Asfar, who's Muslim, incredibly religiously devout. His family were also super religious nice people. They one time fed me octopus, bottom five meal of my life. It's like chewing a giant rubber band. Just. But other than that, great people. But even as a little kid, I noticed and had conversations about the fact that the way Asfar followed Allah was different than the way I was following Jesus. Because when we were in elementary school, he kept a notebook and he would write down every time he messed up, every time he got in trouble, every, everything he did wrong, he, he kept it in a notebook. And then I, like, I looked at him and I was like, I'm not doing... Love keeps no record of wrongs. I know, because I hear it read at every stupid wedding my parents drag me to. Like, I can't erase the, the things I've done from my memory, but I, I'm not keeping a list in my notebook because the Bible tells me God erases that stuff daily, continually. And then I grew up and realized there are Muslims all over the world who keep a list, a lot of them keep a spreadsheet in an Excel file or a Google Doc, and it's the list of all the commands that they've kept and the good things that they've done in one column and a list of all the commands they've broken and the bad things they've done in another column. And the idea is to get a really big net positive balance so that maybe, just maybe when they die, it'll be enough for Allah to accept them. But they don't know. You talk to them, they're like, perhaps in the end, Allah will be merciful. But they don't know. And so they strive and they try. And they, they, they keep increasing The gap, And there's something almost admirable about that from the outside looking in, about the dedication and the commitment to it. But there's something heartbreaking about it as well. It's like joyless and bleak. It's living in black and white when the world was meant to be lived in color. But this idea of grace is difficult for Muslims to understand. It's difficult for people of all different religions to understand. It's difficult for atheists to understand because the idea is like, if it's all grace... If it doesn't matter what you do, if if God's love isn't built on how you're performing and what boxes you're checking, then isn't that just a license to go do whatever you wanna do? Isn't that just permission for people to go out and, and sin? And the thing is, there are a lot of Christians who struggle with this as well. A lot of people who've been in church for a long time, been following Jesus for a long time, who are so bought in, hook, line, and sinker to this cultural idea, that our value is intricately interwoven with our performance. That, that every inch has to be earned. That those Christians not only misunderstand grace, they actively resist it. They create extra good hoops to jump through and, and bad hoops to avoid so they can feel like they deserve the love of God. And so they can make a dividing line and keep the people who don't deserve it at an arm's length. We create our own little systems of self-made righteousness. But the problem with that is that grace is the only pathway that actually leads to the lives we were created to live. Lives full of color and beauty and meaning and purpose because it has absolutely nothing to do with keeping score and everything to do with transforming us from the inside out. The grace that saves us also changes us in ways that nothing else can No amount of determination, no amount of effort, no 12-step program or 21-step program will ever do for us the same thing that recognizing the grace of Jesus does for us. That realizing God's love isn't dependent on what I'm doing or how I'm doing it. It's not about what I've done or what's been done to me. It's about what Jesus did for me and that's it. God loves me not because of what I've done, but in spite of what I've done. Fair warning, though, when you really understand that, it will wreck your life. It will wreck you for anything else. And so I want to talk about grace this morning. If you have a Bible, you can crack it open to the book of Colossians chapter 1. If you hit Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, keep going. If you hit Thessalonians, go back. A little background about Colossians before we dive into the book. This is a letter written by Paul from prison, where he's been chained up for proclaiming the gospel of Jesus to the world. It's written to the church in Colossae, which is uh, just over the mountains from the Aegean Sea in modern day Turkey. It's a church planted by Paul's friend Epaphras. And Epaphras visited Paul in prison. And he's like, hey man, I got the church going in Colossae. There's people who are believing this is the good stuff that's going on, but this is the bad stuff that's going on. And the bad stuff in Colossae was this pagan philosophy built on works righteousness, built on a pathway to earning the love of God that threatened to knock these young believers and this young church off the bedrock of grace. And so Paul was inspired to write them this letter. This is what he says in Colossians chapter one, verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. A quick time out for those of you who aren't churchy people like, what is an apostle? An apostle comes from this Greek word apostolos, which means person sent. So, Paul's like, hey, I'm a man on a mission for Jesus Christ, sent on that mission by Jesus Christ. In the ancient world, an apostolos was someone to whom a ruler had given a mission to go live out. So, Paul's like, hey, Paul, guy with a mission, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. I think it's kind of interesting that the first thing Paul and Timothy do here is wish grace upon the Colossians. Because if you flip a few pages or you scroll down a little bit, what you'll find is that in the very last sentence of this letter, Colossians 4.18, Paul writes, I, Paul, am writing this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. He begins the letter and he ends the letter with grace. Grace. And what I think is so cool about that is it's a perfect picture of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. You guys, Christianity begins with grace. It ends with grace, and it's all grace in the middle. Please don't miss that please. I just think it's such an easy, simple thing to miss that that maybe it began with grace, but that at some point after that, we had to earn our way. At some point after that, we had to check the right boxes. At some point after that, we had to be good enough for God to keep loving us. But the whole message is grace at the beginning, grace at the end, and grace in the middle. And that's what Paul's desperately trying to get the Colossians to see here, Because anything that's not grace is not the gospel. Anything that's not grace is not good news. The good news is that God loves us, not because of what we've done, but in spite of what we've done. His love doesn't depend on our performance. And I know for a lot of us, it can be a struggle to actually believe that. And if I can have a raw, transparent moment with all you guys this morning... I sometimes struggle to believe it. It's sometimes a hurdle for me just to allow grace to wash over me and accept it that I don't need to do more and do better in order to be worthy of the love of God. And I shouldn't struggle with that. I've been following Jesus long enough that I know better. I've been following Jesus long enough that I have experienced better but still there's a voice that haunts me in the back of my mind that says I am unworthy and inadequate. And there's some other box that has to be checked. And that voice dovetails in a really ugly way with this cynicism that can creep in if you've been a pastor for a really long time. I've, I've heard it, I've had it spoken into and over my life by so many older leaders and, and mentors who have done ministry for a while, and they just get jaded. They're like, hey, everyone's going to leave you eventually. They'll leave you, and they'll stick a knife in your back as soon as you stop performing. Performance is the only thing that matters to anybody, so just keep performing. And there was a moment during the pandemic and all of the ugliness that it brought that I started to think to myself, hey, maybe maybe they're right. Maybe my performance is the only thing that matters to anybody. Maybe it's the only thing that matters to God. And I wrote a post-it note to myself. I stuck it on the wall of my office so that I could see it while I looked over my computer. It said, up three R&D. Walk up three steps, turn right, and deliver. There's my wife saying, Mike, it doesn't matter how you're feeling as a human being. Stop complaining that you're bleeding all over the place from this death by a thousand cuts season. Just shut up, walk up three steps, turn right, and deliver. Otherwise, you're failing everybody and you're failing God, and He may as well bail on you because you aren't completing the mission. Do you know how toxic that post it note is? What a lie that is? I mean, thankfully, after a while, I had a friend come into my office and point at it and say, What does that mean? And I knew better than to tell the truth. So I was like, Oh, pff, nothing. It's just a thing. It's just to inspire me to keep going when, I, when I'm feeling down. It's, it's not even anything I really believe. But it was a good enough friend to keep pushing. And put a finger on my chest. So finally, I told the truth, and my friend walked across my office, ripped it off the wall, tore it into twenty pieces, threw it in the garbage, and yelled at me for a while. It was a long yell, you guys, <laughs> but it was this moment of beautiful, harsh grace. I needed to be yelled at, and I like I share that this morning, not because I'm proud of it, like I I'm just share it with you, one to apologize. God, I owe all of you an apology for that. That's so gross that I ever wrote that and that I ever even believed it a little bit for a minute. It's awful, and I'm sorry. And second, I share it just as a way of confessing in an embarrassing manner that I hope will be helpful to all you fellow strugglers along the journey Whoever find yourselves wondering if maybe you gotta perform a little bit better to actually be worthy of the love God's given you. Cause I know I'm not alone. I know I'm not the only one who ever struggles with that. We are not alone. It's a massive cultural problem for us, but it's also an ancient problem. It's as old as Christianity. The book of Galatians, Corinthians, especially Colossians, are written by Paul against this idea that what we really need in order to be accepted by God is Jesus and Like I have Jesus, but I also need to do this or do that. I have Jesus, but I also need to perform in this way so that I can be successful or be good enough or be accepted or be loved. And Paul writes these letters and what he says continually again and again and again is all of your problems are from the butt. You gotta lose your butts. You need Jesus and nothing. Jesus is it. And until you get that, you will always be striving and constantly be failing. It's grace that allows you to produce the kind of fruit that your fruitless striving has never allowed you to produce. That's kind of what Paul gets at next in Colossians. He keeps reading this, is we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for God's people. Now, rewind real quick. Back in verse 1, Paul addressed the Colossians as God's holy people. And sometimes we hear the word holy, and we start thinking about perfection or purity. Like if I ask, hey, are you holy? If I started pointing out people in the audience, like, are you holy today? A lot of us would get nervous. We'd be like, oh, my kid's socks, holy, my husband's underwear, holy, me, I'm working on it, I'm not holy yet. Because that's a misunderstanding of our identity in Christ. And it's a misunderstanding of what the word holy means in the New Testament. It's not about perfection or purity. It's about purpose. Like in Genesis 1, when God created the earth, he set aside the seventh day and called it holy. That's not because it's more pure or perfect. It's the exact same as every other day. It just has a different purpose. Six days for work and one day set aside for worship. So what we're told in the book of Colossians, what we're told again and again and again is that we are holy. And so if I ask you that question, are you holy? The answer is yes. Yes, you are. You are not perfect. You are not perfectly pure, not yet, but you are holy. You have been set aside by God and called to be a part of his mission in the world. And the question is why, like how? What sets us aside and makes us holy? And the answer is faith. That's it. Faith in Jesus Christ Sets us aside, calls us out, and makes us holy. And there is no other qualification at all. It's not like God held a competition. He's like, you know what? I need some people. I, I gotta get a crew to help me out with my mission in the world. So I'm just gonna see who the best and the brightest are. We'll give a bunch of tests and then I'll, I'll claim them for myself. That's not what He did at all. It's by grace alone, through faith alone. In His grace, we're loved. Because of what he did for us, not what we've done for him or for anybody else. And thank God for that. Because if he did hold a competition, a lot of us would not be winning. Like, I wouldn't. I can't turn my head to the right today for some reason. I don't know why. I woke up after sleeping well old, and I can't do it. That's me. Like, last week, I made the second-grade basketball team that I coach run Killers after practice, And I raced them once, I gave them a big head start and then raced them just to suck the joy of living out of them and teach them what it felt like to lose so they'd be ready for Saturday. It was good coaching. But afterwards, I did beat them. But afterwards, I saw stars the whole drive home. Not the white ones in the sky, the little black ones in front of your face. Like, I'm going to pass out now. And I was still wheezing an hour later. I didn't want to tell Jenny about that, but I secretly went to our medicine cabinet to see if we had an inhaler lying around. We did not. But that's how, I, that's how things are going for me, right? I'm not winning, but I don't have to. Jesus won for me, which means grace is accessible to me. Jesus did what he did so I could have grace, so you could have grace, so we all could have grace. Grace is expensive, sacrificial, undeserved love. That's what it is. That's what it is. Jesus paid everything. He gave up his life, even though we were still messed up, even though every single one of us had rejected God, turned our backs on him, and run away from the lives he created us to live. But in the middle of that, God didn't like abandon us to our brokenness or abandon us to our rebellion. He stepped out of eternity into the human story and gave his life so that we could be forgiven and set free. I think there are three things that happen when we decide to put our faith in that. Three things that happen when we come to the end of ourselves and we say, you know what? I don't think I can earn enough or I don't think I can do enough to earn it. The first one is that we're forgiven. We're forgiven. The debt of our sin is completely paid, and that's good news. And if it doesn't seem like good news to you, simply put, you don't understand the depth and the width and the ugliness of your sin. Because when you get it, that's, that's good news. The second thing that happens is we're adopted. We're welcomed into God's family as his sons and daughters. We're like, we're like fully grafted into the thing God's adoption doesn't work like Amazon. It's not like a 90-day return policy where he gets to test us out, see if we're good enough Christians, probably leave the tags on us first, like, I don't know, and then send us back to Jeff Bezos and give us a one-star review if we fail. It's not like that. In the ancient world, adoption was full, complete, irrevocable sonship and daughtership. And when we put our faith in Jesus, we are adopted in. And the third thing is that we're set apart we're set apart. We are made holy, called out to be a part of God's mission in the world. And what's that mission? Well, Paul tells us in verse three, he's like, I thank God every time I pray for you because of your love. So listen, Colossians, you guys are doing what God set you apart to do. You are doing the thing that Jesus said ought to be the defining thing that marks his church. At the Last Supper in John thirteen thirty four, Jesus gathered with his disciples and he looks at them and he says, hey, a new command I give to you. And that, or love one another. And love one another wasn't new, but Jesus wasn't through. He said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And this is a really fascinating moment to think about. Like put yourself in their shoes for a minute. They didn't even get it yet. They understood that he was cranking it up to 11, right? They're like, okay, Jesus loves us in a different way than we love each other or we love anybody else. But they hadn't watched him die yet. Two days later, they really got it. what Jesus meant when he said, love each other, this self-sacrificial, completely crazy way that I've loved you. But then Jesus finished the thought and he said, by this, the world will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. Like if you can love each other, if you can love the people around you with this unique, incredible, beautiful, self-sacrificial love that I've shown you, then the world will change and the world will know who you are. That is supposed to be the mark, the defining thing that separates the church from the rest of the world. And I read that, and I think about it, and I think, what an amazing vision. Like, what a cool picture of a world that that even if they're skeptical about what we believe, is amazed at how well we treat each other and blown away by how well we treat them. I know that's not really our reality in the United States of America today, but you guys, it is the history of the church. Like, 2000 plus years ago, before parts of the Bible had even been written, this ragtag group of Jesus followers became a movement that shook the most powerful empire the world had ever seen to its core, and it radically changed the lives of people across the planet because of the way they lived and the way they loved. And love for them wasn't just some ethereal concept, it inspired them to do stuff the kind of crazy, amazing stuff that made people want Christianity to be true before they even understood it. And those people ultimately were loved into Christianity. They weren't argued in. They weren't shamed in. They weren't legislated in. They were loved in. And that's not to say that arguments and laws don't have a place It's not to say that they they can't create a more peaceful, prosperous society. They absolutely can. That's unquestionably true. It's just that you guys, for the last 2,000 years, it has been grace at the beginning, grace at the end, and all grace in the middle that radically revolutionized societies one changed life at a time. That's the history of the world. The problem, though, with grace like that is that it's expensive, It costs us something to live like that. It actually requires God's people to sacrificially give their time and their talent and their treasure away to other people who are often hard to love and frankly don't deserve the kind of love we're giving. And the question is, how can we do that? What in the world would inspire us to pay that kind of a cost in the middle of a culture that Constantly drives us toward self centeredness, that constantly says, You got to cling to what you've got, you need more for you. Why would we ever, ever pay what it costs to love people around us the way that Jesus loved us? Well, Paul explains the answer to that question in verse 5. we we'll rewind a little and then we're going to get there. He says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for God's people the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. I love the phrase, the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven. Paul's saying, look, you're able to love the way that you love because of where your hope is. It's like, I know it's expensive to love people the way you're loving them. (sighs) I know it's countercultural to love people the way you're loving them, but you can love like that and you can give like that because your hope is in heaven. You're giving away your time. You're giving away your energy. You're giving away your passion. You're giving away your money. That's all stuff that people on this earth put their hope in, things they can grab hold of, things that they can see. They put their hope in prosperity. They put their hope in pleasure. They put their hope in peace. But your hope isn't in the same place that their hope is in. You have a hope in heaven. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said it like this. He said, the whole range of human hope is within the compass of the eye. But in Christ, our hope has passed beyond the sphere of sight. Because we are able to use the earthly things we've been given to spend the earthly things we've been given in order to live on mission because our hope is not in any of those things. And here's the gut check, at least for me. The stuff that we don't want to give away, the things that we think God might ask us for that we desperately hope he might, or we desperately hope he won't ask us for, the stuff we kind of clench our fists around and say, well, I don't want to give that. I don't want to give my time. I don't want to give my money. I don't want to give my abilities there especially to people who don't deserve it and people who are difficult to love, the gut check is that that might be where you've accidentally put your hope. See, we can't give away the things we've put our hope in. We can't spend them to help love other people. We gotta cling to them. So what is it for you whatever it is, Paul's saying, you don't have to hold that tightly anymore. You have a better hope, one that's not in the tangible things of this world that are so fleeting. It's in heaven and it's anchored there. It cannot be taken away from you. That's what the word hope means in the New Testament. It's used there in a different way than we use hope. Because we kind of use hope to put a positive spin on uncertainty, right? Like we don't know what the future holds. We're like, well, I, I hope, oh man, I, I, I don't know, but I hope. But that's not the kind of hope that Paul's talking about here. Like, my mother-in-law bought me these shoes, right? They're just black-on-black Vans Old School. She thinks they're very ugly. My wife also thinks they're very ugly. Many of you might, too. But on Christmas, when I unwrapped them, she didn't have to sit there and think, oh, I hope Mike likes those ugly shoes, Because I told her to buy them. She texted me, what do you want for Christmas? And I texted her back a link, these. All right, so on Christmas morning, she wasn't sitting there with, with this hope in uncertainty. She was sitting there with hope and expectancy, giving me something she knew that I would like. That's the kind of hope the Bible's talking about. That's the kind of hope that grace unlocks in us. Our hope is certain, it's just not done yet. That's the kind of hope God wants us to hope with. It's in process, or it's, it's certain, but still in process. There's no question about the end of this story. There's no question about whether God is going to set all things right and make all things new. It's certain, but still in process. It's done. It's just not done yet. And Paul says, because our hope is anchored in that kind of hope, in heaven, not on earth, we can walk out into a world in need, desperately yearning to breathe the oxygen of God's love and let everything he's placed in our hands flow through us in a way that points them toward the good news of the gospel, that they are not loved because of what they do, that their value is not caught up in their performance, but that grace is real because Jesus came and gave his life so that we could be forgiven and set free. And once we get that, it just, it wrecks us, it changes us. The grace that saves us changes our lives. And so my invitation to you this morning as we kick off this new series is not something that you need to go do, but it is something that will change the way you do everything you do. I just wanna invite all of us today to let God's grace wash over us. Just stand there and let the ocean of his grace wash over you. Believe it. Stop believing that your value is tied up in your success. Stop believing that God's love is dependent on whether you check the right boxes and how well you check them. Stop believing that and remember that his acceptance has nothing to do with your performance. Because as you believe that, as you begin to step into this beautiful thing we call Christianity that's grace at the beginning, grace at the end, and all grace in the middle. Grace will begin to define your life. And when we live lives defined by grace, we're able to step into the beauty and the meaning and the life and the purpose. God knit us up, dreamed us up, and placed us here to live. And we're able to make the difference he wants us to make. You guys pray with me. God, thank you for grace. Thank you that it's grace, grace, all grace, grace at the beginning, grace at the end, grace in the middle. Lord, none of us deserve that. All of us are failed and flawed and broken. And all of us struggle to believe it. We struggle to believe this too-good-to-be-true reality that your love isn't contingent upon our performance, but would you just allow grace to wash over us today in a way that transforms us, in a way that allows us to see ourselves the way that you see us and see the people around us the way that you see us so that we can live in your love and share it with everyone we crash into. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.